welcome once again to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor coming to you from Stockholm in Sweden. This is the weekly podcast for the 70 odd million Irish, give or take, give or take, around the world. Whether you were born in Ireland or are of Irish heritage, what we try to do every week on this podcast is share the story of somebody from our community, from our Irish community around the world, share their achievements and the things they do be getting up to. And lads, do we ever have a story for you this week, right? Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about it in a second. I Just before I do that, I want to tell you that this is a community-supported podcast. It only exists because you do. So if you could support it at patreon.com forward slash our man in Stockholm, that would be great. That's a feed where you'll find this podcast, The Global Gale. You'll find the Irish in Sweden podcast, which is a similar podcast for the Irish community in Sweden. Uh, you'll find the Arrow Man in Stockholm podcast and the Premier Swedes podcast, which is uh, a podcast where I interview Swedes who have played in the Premier League because I live here and I do like a bit of football. So if you could throw in a five or a month there, that would be brilliant. Um, also, I'm going to put another call out to you for um, different kinds of stories that I want to tell. Right, We're still struggling a little bit to get in touch with people in the Irish communities, particularly in South America and in Africa. So don't think we've had anybody from Africa just yet. We've had one or two little stories about South America. So if you have anybody there that you would like to suggest, uh, please drop a message to me on social media or uh, in the comments or wherever you're watching this or listening to this or hearing this, and we'll try and get them on. Or if you yourself have a story, hit me up on social media. The best place is probably on Twitter, at Philip O'Connor. Or on Instagram at Philip Eblana, E-B-L-A-N-A, and one L in Philip, and she'll find me there. And sure, if not, just Google Big Mouth Philip O'Connor, and no doubt my name will come up, and you'll find some way of getting in touch with me, right? Anyway... Uh, the last few weeks, there's been a lot of sporting podcasts on the Global Gale, or a lot of sporting subjects covered on the Global Gale, and this week is no stranger to it, because we're at that stage in the European, or the Northern Hemisphere summer, if you will, where uh, lots of sporting events are taking place. Now, some of you listening to this will know that I work a lot with sport and sports journalism, but that's where the interest comes from, but also an awful lot of Irish people are interested in an awful lot of different sports, and as the Rugby World Cup is approaching, no doubt we'll be doing a few things Uh, from the point of view of the Irish community abroad on that as well but this week I have a story for you that I really want to bring you and it's a in one way it's a little bit personal right there's a triathlon in Norway called the Norseman and it's simply known as the most extreme triathlon in the world right it's 3.8 kilometers swimming it's 180 kilometers on a bike and then it's a marathon that finishes up a mountain right so you can see why they're not messing around lads when they say that this is the most extreme triathlon in the world not messing not a word of a lie in there at all right and i used to commentate on this back in the day right i've i do a lot of niche sports and a lot of odd things and once you do one of them and people get the get an eye for you or an ear for you the next thing you get asked to do more and more and more of them so i've covered all manner of, of strange sports and a few years ago i was asked to commentate on the norseman live and i did so I think we started about 5 o'clock in the morning and we kept going till about 7 o'clock in the evening which is approximately as long as some of the people were racing if not even a little bit longer and just commentating on it was exhausting so you can only imagine what it takes to do that, right? Do you know who did it? Willie Murphy from Dublin did it last week, right? It's always on the first week in August and there's only about 260 spots in the whole race and you enter a lottery. Now, there's various different ways of rising up the lottery. You can be invited because you're a professional triathlete. Uh, You can apply several times. You can take part in various different races. So there's ways of increasing your chances. But 
thousands of people, like if not tens of thousands of people enter every year and they pay a few bob uh, with the hope of having their name drawn out of the hat, right? And as I say, this is everything from professional triathletes who've been doing this, who do this for a living, professional endurance sport and multi-sport athletes, to people like Willie Murphy who was sitting at home on his couch in Ireland, lives now in Tipperary, thinking, do I really want to be doing this anymore? And I found his story so fascinating. Uh, It was actually brought to my attention by Stuart McKinnon who was one of the, the arrangers of the races and the Celt man and the Patagonia man and all the other extreme triathlons that are out there. And it we're also in a time of the year as well, lads, where you're coming off the summer holidays and an awful lot of us will have enjoyed the fruits of the barbecue and the extra few beers in the evening and that kind of thing. We might have put on a bit, a bit of timber there that we might be looking at ourselves going, Jesus, how am I going to get rid of this now before the Christmas rush starts? So I thought I'd get in touch with William, even though he doesn't live abroad, but it, because his story happened abroad and because it's such a crazy, crazy thing to do and literally only a handful of Irish people have ever done it. So I thought I have to get him on to tell the story and I thought, okay, it's going to be one day. And then the story he told me, holy smokes. Listen, I'm not going to keep you because it's far more interesting to listen to him uh, talking about it than it is listening to me waffling about it. So here he is, Willie, Will, William Willie Murphy telling the story of how he went from his couch to completing the Norseman, the most extreme triathlon in the world. <laughs> Willie, can we maybe start with uh, how you got involved in triathlon in the first place before we get into the whole madness of ending up in Norseman? Have you been doing triathlon for a while, have you? Um, well, it's funny, Kat, because um, at the time when I started, I wasn't really doing triathlon at all. And um, I was actually in a local Eaton bookstore and seeing a triathlon magazine and it caught my eye. I picked it up and there was there was on the front cover there was a special on the Norseman itself. And I remember bringing that home and put it onto the kitchen table and my wife looked at it and went, "Absolutely no way," she says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, knowing me, you know, because I hadn't I hadn't even done a triathlon at that stage, but I read through it and I was just captivated by it. And that was that was like early um, thousand and twelve or so, you know. Hmm. Um, and really wasn't I hadn't been doing anything much there, just probably doing that swimming. And then I decided to kind of try out triathlon, and I did my first one in in triathlon. I hadn't a clue where I was at, so I was just trying to get through that as best I could. And then from there, I just started to progress and um, joined the club and Pulse Triathlon Club uh, based out of Dublin, and. Um, Pretty soon, I was on track, and I was, you know, my first Ironman in Wales in 2014, uh, and then Ironman Barcelona in 2015. And uh, like all the while, I was looking at the, the Norseman and thinking, these guys, how did they, how could they do that? So, you know, how, what would it take for me to get there? So I started entering entering the ballot then around 2013. So, um, so it took ten back years that, um, for, for you to get to get the place, basically, yeah. Yeah. So like each year, it was just like a, it was like a habit now, a ritual. You know, we went to the Norseman, and you don't know, you never know. And then, like halfway through that, you know, five years on, they were offering uh, double the the entries if you entered previously. You know, mm. I think there were there were some incentives there. So I said, yeah, sure, yeah, I want to keep doing this. 
Um, and in around that time when I was applying for it, so I, I was in a reasonably good state of fitness, you know, mm. so we could probably take it on and see what, what would happen. Well, when um, you say when you say you were in a reasonably good state of fitness, then does that mean that you weren't in a reasonably good state of fitness when you applied this year? Yes, <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a roll on um, those years was completely different. Um, mm. So up to probably when I won the ballot, let's just say when I won the ballot there last October, November, actually. Um, I had not been doing any rigorous cycling or running. Uh, in fact, I was just about to kind of close that chapter on triathlon altogether. Um, I was coming out the back of um, a very deep uh, depression for myself, and I was in a bad place. Um, I was getting to a better place at that that, that point in time. Um, but just to visualize it, like I was near 115 kilos in weight, hadn't been running. I had been doing a lot of swimming now. I, I, I actually took up a different sport, ice swimming. Mm. Um, and I swam for the Irish team in the French um, championships, in the World Championships in France um, this January, called Water Extreme Swimming, mm. which was helping me. Um, but when my name was called out of the hat, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> you know, at, the, at the time when I'm not ready, this lands, uh, and like at this stage as well, I've, I've got a core group of friends that have been on this journey as well, and they've been applying, hmm. and nobody's been successful. And we've been to the Keltman, we've done the Keltman, and I've supported my friends in the Keltman. Hmm. And um, we've got a taste of what it's like, you know. Uh, I failed on the big Keltman when I tried it, um, like the three years before I tried, and uh, didn't make the cutoff coming out of T2 on the bike. So that was another major kick, and, kick for me and uh, set me down a different path. Hmm. But like when, when it happened for me, I just had a choice to make. Um, are we going to just let this one go and say that's it? Or are we going to go for it? But I knew if I was going to say yes, that it meant I had to go all in. Yeah. Because this is kind of like when you get into the Norseman, right? I think if I remember rightly from my time commentating on it, there's like 240 spots and that's it. And they'd love to have more, but they can't because of the logistics. They can't do it safely with any more than that. So it's basically like winning a golden ticket in Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. The lads that you trained with and that you went off competing with and that you were supporting before and maybe were supporting you on Keltman and that kind of thing. What did they say when it was your name that was pulled out of the hat? Because, you know, the way some people can be a little bit jealous because they're taking it more seriously maybe than what you were at that point. Was there any resentment or was everybody just happy for you, Willie? Absolutely no resentment. Like the, the, the three of us there, my, my friend uh, Keith Murphy and Shay Brady, um, like Keith and I had both had DNF experiences in Keltman and Shay is uh, super, would be the, the fittest of the three of us and has completed Keltman four times now and he's got wow. two blue shorts and two whites. Hmm. And we were there to support him for that, and you know we support each other. But when I got, then it was pulled out of the hat. It was just you know like my brothers, you know, and um, they were delighted. Now it was a foregone um, conclusion that they were going to be my support group. You know, hmm. they they've been there with me um, through 
success and failure and we know what it takes. So hmm. for us, it was like, it was for all of us. Um, we were delighted to get there. And I was absolutely thrilled to have them there with me because they made a massive difference for me. Yeah. So I, I think it was just like an emergency response. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you break the glass. These guys are ready to go. You know, you couldn't have any better still. Yeah. And uh, there's no way you would have gone to no way without them. And and yet, a lot of it is on you, right? Because there's only one solution. There's only one way to survive Norseman. And even if you do do it, there's no guarantee because injury can kick in. What does the the training look like for something like that? Did you have to sit down? Were you Googling? Were you talking to to Shay and to Kevin and saying, okay, how the hell am I going to manage to do this? Yeah, Shay and Keith. um, What I knew when I I had to... um, what was going through my mind was that, yeah, as I said, I had to be all in. Like, I was coming from basically couch to Norseman. Now, I know that mentally I have, I know what, what I've gone through and um, how I can apply myself. Hmm. So I I knew that I needed to see a coach and I needed to see a, a nutritionist. Hmm. So within, whilst I was in the process of, you know, two weeks searching rigorously for the right people to support me, um, I started training myself hmm. uh, and eventually found um, uh, a guy called Killian Moffat uh, who runs a coaching um, business called Team WhatsApp. What's up? And um, I chatted to him about it and like, he knew where I was coming from and this was just going to be some challenge and we discussed it at length. Uh, and then we agreed that we're going to work together on this and he was going to help me and that program literally started uh, by the time we got everything sorted it was the last week in November uh, and then we started that process and it was a slow one to begin with uh, and to a certain extent it was absolutely brilliant for me that I could take the guesswork out of how I'm going to train for this hmm. and I had to kind of build a good rapport with Killian who's a fantastic um, coach um, and trust his plan, which became my plan, which became my daily routine. Hmm. And I had regular contact with him. And likewise, with the nutritionist, I wanted to make sure that I had, you know, my goal was to lose weight. I needed to lose weight to climb hills. At the time, like climbing hills was not my greatest discipline. Hmm. Um, so, like, turn that around, I needed to lose the weight as well, like, psychologically. I just immediately started telling myself that I love cycling hills. <laughs> you know, people ask me, you know, how do you get up that hill? You know, I'm going up it. So I just tell myself every time, I love this. This is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> if you say it long enough, your body just doesn't know the difference between its emotions. You're telling it that this is great. And you just lap her up. You just gaslight um, yourself into doing it, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Um, I've actually, I've funny dream- enough, it does work. Yeah. yeah, because I've, with the race, or the former race director there was a guy called Dog Oliver. I remember one time we actually drove the course, right? And he was telling me that the hills that you cycle in the Norseman, right? First, we'll get to the swimming in a second, 3.8 kilometres in freezing cold water. But the hills, the gradient actually increases. There's three or four hills there and it just gets tougher and tougher the further you go into it. Was that the biggest challenge or were you more worried about finishing up the top of the mountain on Gaustatoppen or were you worried about the, the temperature of the water? What was the biggest sort of physical challenge that you saw before you? 
the, the climbing on the, on the bike. That was a hard part. I knew that once I got through the bike that I was making my way through the run. Mm-hmm. You know, unless my legs just completely went from me. But my goal was to kind of, if I need to be fit enough to get off the bike and to be able to run at a, you know, a decent enough pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then feed myself because, you know, I have a really sensitive stomach. So, you know, I can't a lot of products that just don't work for me. So I've had to take a different approach to feeding myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the bike, but a lot of the work that uh, Killian had done with me uh, focused um, predominantly on the bike and the and the run and the, the swimming was, you know, we had a plan for the swim, but I've been very active with the swimming and uh, I was like never the fastest, but over the course of course of the year I've you know got up progressively better. I could see metrics that I give to myself, and even when I look back at the little board that I have here when I started, you know. I have, all the different where I've started from and where what I need to be mm. be at come race day, and we were pretty close to it. Yeah, you know, I only had eight months to kind of really turn it around, and um, you know, what's going through my mind all the all the time is, uh, have I got enough to get to the start line? And then you know, you get three quarters away and said, yeah, I've got enough to get to the start line. Have I got enough done to get me to the finish line? Mm. And that. That doubt was there, and you know, coming back to the question, the bike was for me the big obstacle to kind of get through. Hmm. If we rewind just a little bit there, because you mentioned you were basically on the couch, you weighed 115 kilos, you weren't feeling great for a, like a period of your life there, um, and then you know a nutritionist comes in, a coach like Killian comes in. The physical aspect of of the triathlon is just it's I don't know how anybody gets through it, but the mental aspect is even more interesting. Um, how did you? Was it very hard to change your eating habits and to lose that weight that you knew you needed to lose to be able to get up on the bike and to be able to perform on the day? Was that a huge change in your life from where you were at that time it, massive change but what crystallizes crystallizes for me was you know i've been looking at Norstown videos for a long time i've been looking at guys going against the top and I remember your commentary and seeing you there at the ballots and things like that mm. uh, watching that from afar and you know every decision for that moment onwards was um if i'm putting something in my mouth is that going to get me to the top of the mountain? Mm. And if I believe it didn't, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going in. That's it. That's so it. I had to change my attitude completely. And it's, you know, it's like the old samurai way of life. The diets that they had, they never eat for pleasure. They eat for the body. Mm. So, you know, for me, it was just, that's just the kind of mantra that I adopted. And, you know, to lose weight and train, I found in, in the beginning was quite okay and things were happening really fast then it kind of plateaued in terms of weight loss mm. and then having the you know with the training regime that i had with the coach um come february there was no days off mm. it was the first time i've experienced that you know the intensity was you know coming up to some of the some of the sessions aligned very well in a way that didn't require massive amounts of rest or a day's rest mm. Uh, but it was every day, and I had to be fueled for that. So I was conscious of, you know, eating right for the fueling and to be able to burn enough to drop the weight at the same time, which was, it was difficult. Mm. But towards the end, then we, we almost got to where I was trying to get to 90 kilos. Mm. I managed to get down as far as 98. Yeah. 
and that's as far as I could, I could get it. But um, still, it seven, seventeen in kilos in eight months, Willie. That's that's a hell of a drop right there. And like without, with, with the fitness and with everything coming on, and like work life was pretty intense as well. So I had to kind of really just kind of balance everything out. Mm. So literally finding the right times to train, and I knew that on certain days, if, if I left it to later, there was a chance it wouldn't happen. So I'd just get up a little bit earlier and get it done, mm. even if it meant like getting up at five a.m. and and doing what I needed to do. Yeah. What what sort of things did the nutritionist get you to eat? Because you know we we often think of that. You mentioned about the samurai there eating for the body and not for pleasure, right? Did you were you able to enjoy food at all, or was it sort of boiled chicken and brown rice and broccoli for every meal or that kind of thing? Yeah, well, like I I suffered a lot with, with um, IBS in mm. the past and um, less so now, but I'm very conscious of stuff that I that really kind of triggers me and sets me off. Mm-hmm. So I would literally first thing I'd need to eat if I'm, when I'm breaking the fast or not uh, not eating uh, would have to be protein. So it was a kind of a, a, a mixture between protein and fats for me that works for me. So that for me in the morning, like if I was getting my breakfast in before a bike ride, it would be boiled eggs, brown bread, and a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. And that would set me off. And then on the bike, then I would have, you know, for eating, I'd have boiled uh, baby potatoes on the bike. Wow. With salt. And I found that the carbs in the potato matched more or less the contents of, you know, of a gel. But it just it wouldn't bind me up. It wouldn't cause me a problem. Yeah. And then there were certain kind of cereal bars that, that worked for me. So I'd, I'd eat that when I was training. Uh, lunches and dinners would be protein, so it'll be meats, a lot of meat for me, and uh, vegetables. And mostly it's just sticking to foods that were fresh and had no additives as mm. best as I could. Now, it's very hard to do that this day and age. Um, and there was no kind of cheat days like that. Like I said, everything that was going in had, was designed to get me to the top. Mm. Or, or, or else, you know. So I just kept it. I just kept it very simple. And to be honest, there wasn't anything that really kind of I found icky to eat or anything like that. So it was just this is what this is good for me. It, this is going to work. Yeah, that's the way I looked at it. It's amazing when you make that mental switch uh, and like that eating for pleasure uh, contra, you know, eating to perform, eating to get to the top of Gausta Toppen. It's amazing how easy once you buy into that thing, no more than what you were saying there about going, I love this cycling up hills crack, even when you don't. But it just goes to show you the, sort of the power of the mind when you decide to do something and, and what you're capable of doing, you know. Um, the, the start of the race, right? You obviously had to get over here. Uh, were Keith and Shay both with you or was it just Keith who was with you this time? Um, well, Keith and Shay joined me, um, and I had another friend who I worked with um, previously in, in in my career. When I used to work in the Irish Air Corps, and he worked me, and he's been living and working in Sweden for twenty seven years now. Brilliant. And uh, he he came along, and he drove from Lund uh, to Oslo to pick us up at the airport. Wow. And and he prepared a lot of meals for us in advance of the week that we were staying. So we, we, we arrived on, on the first 
uh, he picked us up and and then basically was uh, kind of transport and, and cook for the week. Super. Which made a massive difference. But yeah. like we've had to like get in there and everything just went wrong for us. Did it, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was just an absolute nightmare, but you know, with more challenges after challenges mm. just to kind of get to the start line. What sort of and thing even went on, wrong? Uh, well, the very first thing is like we were checking in with Norwegian Airlines and there was one spelling mistake on Kay's passport and the check-in staff there was like, no, you, you know, you can't go on the flight. Oh, God. Um, and I just, my heart just sank and went, oh my God, like this isn't happening and mm. I'm trying to remain calm uh, and sort her out. So, you know, I made a few changes online, had to pay extra. They weren't very helpful. Uh, and in the end, like, I was just fighting, fighting, fighting with them, um, and they let us on board. So I don't know whether, you know, they let us out of sheer persistence or, you know, what happened there, but the flight was delayed in the end. Oh, Jesus. Um, and then when we landed, because of the delay, the car that uh, Keith had booked was released. They didn't hold the car from because oh, it was late 40 minutes. So then we had, we had our second car was gone. Uh, and the rates they were charging was, was horrendous, so we just couldn't smash out for us. So we made um, our friend John Woodlock's car walk for us. God almighty. Um, yeah. All, all of this on day contact. one? <laughs> that was day one, yeah. God And almighty. then the next day, the battery in St. John's car died. <laughs> so we were push-starting that down from the accommodation we had in Morset, and we went to Voss, to build team it to get a new battery and we got that sorted. So every time something failed on us, our reaction was like, let's just get this sorted. So yeah. we're getting used to that, you know, and it was just small things like that after, you know, issue after issue. And even going into T1, you know, checking the bike in before getting onto the ferry, hmm. the very last thing was uh, checking the backlight. Backlight wasn't turned on. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what else is going to go wrong here? Like, you know, this has to be the last thing. You know, I don't want any more screw-ups. You, 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 um, they you were think very that, kind to help us. <laughs> you, you think that at the time you go, yeah, yeah, okay, this has to be the last thing. Because they're very particular about safety in that race as well. Like, you know, if the, the smallest little thing isn't working, such as a backlight or a frontlight, they won't let you race, you know. And I've actually seen somebody who was involved in the race yeah. who was pulled out because they were injured and they wouldn't admit the injury. And they just went, sorry, you're not moving on here. We're not letting you through here, you know. So they can be very, very harsh on it. Um, did you go to uh, Eidfjord? There's a social swim on the Friday. Did you go down to that or were you busy sort of carb loading and resting the day before? Yeah, we went down on the Thursday and the Friday. We did both of them and they were, they were fantastic. Mm. Love swimming in Eidfjord. The water is just amazing. Mm. You know, it's that mixture of fresh water and salt water. And it's just stunning. Mm. And couldn't believe it, you know. I just didn't want to get out of the water. Just looking around at the scenery. It's beautiful. Just yeah. the pleasure to swim in, yeah. You know, a, swimming in the wet suit for me though was it was a challenge for me because I normally don't swim in it, um, yeah. and I had the wet suit there from previous triathlons and so I hadn't worn it in years. So in the last month in the lead up to the race, I was getting used to wearing it and um, so so much better, you know, with it on for buoyancy and all of that. But yeah. I much prefer to swim just in in skins. Yeah. 
Um, can you describe to people, because Eid Fjord, where the race starts, it's just a small little village with this massive fjord attached to it. Um, you arrived there basically in the middle of the night, right? What time did you have to be there to get on the ferry that was going to take you 3.8 kilometres out into the fjord before jumping off? What time did you have to be there, Willie? Uh, the transition opened at 3am. <laughs> so we, we were 25 minutes away from Eid um, Fjord for our accommodation. Hmm. So we got up around half one, we got some, some breakfast and we had everything loaded into the car ready to go and then off we went. And hmm. um, we arrived there by approximately half two, just ready to rock and roll. Um, because we wanted to be early hmm. and I'm glad that we were, you know, because there wasn't very much time as those massive queues building up after we got out of uh, yeah. checking the bike in. Um, so we got there early, got there on time, dealt with the light, light uh, problem, hmm. uh, wrecked the bike. And then we were, that was it, you know, stick on the wetsuit, um, make sure I had everything I needed. The crew knew what they were, were to do and I got onto the ferry around 4 a.m. Hmm. So 4 a.m., uh, the boat leaves, yeah. it goes out into the middle of the fjord, and one year we actually broadcast live from the ferry at the very beginning, right? And what tends to happen, for those who don't know, you basically jump off into the darkness. Uh, now, you can get off from a slightly lower point. How did you decide that you were going to approach this? Um, well, jump, like, the, for me, the, the ferry was amazing. Like, I've been on edge all week, and I've been, you know, nervous about the race and everything else. And when we turned the corner around from the hotel and seen the ferry parked up, mm. I just turned around and had the, big, the biggest smile on my face. <laughs> I looked at my mate and said, like, I'm going to get to jump off of that. So that's all I wanted to do. I had no problem with that at all. And I was just chomping at the bit to just to make that leap, you know. So for me, that was like a real highlight for me was jumping off wow. off that ferry. Yeah. So no no issues at all. It could have been 20, 30, 40 feet. I would have just... Didn't care. Straight in. Going in. <laughs> Yeah, because again, I'm a useless swimmer, right? So me and knowing the temperature of the water, and there's a guy called Jürgen Milo who does, you know, um, all sorts of stuff about cold water swimming, and knowing how he measures temperature, I just find it absolutely mad. And I just I have the height of respect for people like you who dive off there and just get cracking. How long were you in the water before the race starts? Because I know they spray you basically with fire hoses to get your body temperature down, so you don't get some sort of shock when you jump in there. Were you in there for long before the the hoot or sound at the start of the race? Yeah, there's kind of two parts of that. You know, one, I've been used to swimming in in ice water Mm. with no wetsuit. Yeah. Um, So swimming in, like, I I can swim up to, like, four kilometres in 10 degree water, but no problem. So like I knew I wasn't going to have an issue for us. In fact, it was I found it colder on the ferry on the way out with the wind. Yeah. And when I when I jumped in, it was like, oh, this is like, this is lovely. So getting into the bath. <laughs> and it was nice. It was just nice and warm for me. So I was completely relaxed in the water. Now I know that there are some people there that um, did have, you know, trouble with it, but they're coming from more temperate climate. Yeah. Yeah. But I've been conditioning myself for years swimming in cold water, so I'm well prepared for it and have swam a kilometre in three degree water. Jesus. And I have the ice mile done. So like I'm I would consider myself, you know, very proficient in yeah. handling cold water. Hmm. 
Um, so from that perspective, like once once I got in, then I could see that I was kind of not the first off the boat, but um, in the middle, and I seen that there was a lot of people had gone, you know, maybe forty meters out yeah. to the to kayaks across uh, near um, the shoreline. Mm. But I was literally, you know, a hundred meters, maybe two hundred meters from the boat, mm. swimming towards the kayaks. When I heard the ship's horn sound, and that was the signal to start the race. Yeah, and there was a moment's hesitation, looking around. Well, you know, I'm not over where I should be. Yeah, and I was in the middle of the fjord, and surrounded by you know, a handful of people. So I just said, "Yeah, horn said, you know, brief." And you hear the horn, you go. Yeah. So and I, I just started went. swimming and. And off I went, so I could see where I needed to go. It was dark enough. Um, but what happened for us is um, we were fighting against the tide. Mm. Uh, and the tide was growing from the time when, when, when we started. And I remember just, you know, seeing a core group of people way over in the distance on my right-hand side. Mm. And I felt like, yeah, I'm all alone here. I know where I need to go. Nowhere I'd rather be. Yeah. No, just keep swimming. Uh, and then every time I'd, I'd look for a transition point, you know, when I'm swimming, I can see, am I moving here? Hmm. And it looks like, no, Jesus, the current is strong here. Oof. Just keep swimming. Hmm. And then when I rounded the head and I could see the fire off in the distance where the, the torn boy was, hmm. I said, right, grand, I'm to get in here and got time. Um, but I knew that I'd, need, I'd been slow yeah. for, for my time. I, I was kind of hoping that I might get it in 115, 120. Yeah. I ended up uh, doing 129. Yeah. And it turns out that, you know, across the board, even for the pros, they were down like 10 minutes with the tides. Yeah. Average was like 10 to 15 minutes for everyone else. So I was happy enough with my swim. I came out of the water. I was very relaxed. I mm. wasn't in trouble. Uh, and uh, I was ready to rock and roll from that point mm. of view. But... Um, my heart rate was up all right, yeah. and that was one thing that I, I knew we had a, a range for the for the bike. We needed to keep the first hill climb at a certain heart rate, yeah. and I was already kind of above that, so I needed to take steps to kind of get that under control. But the swim, I just loved that swim. I loved that water. Um, and being out practically on your own with no one kind of touching off you or you know. Yeah, getting bashed in the head with, you know, somebody who's swimming by, you can't see you. Um, it was really, really good. Yeah, have to say. What, yeah. What's what's the buzz like when you come up on that little sandy, pebbly beach there, right? Because there's a load of people standing there, and you mentioned like it's an hour. You came out an hour after, an hour and twenty, hour twenty nine or so, right? So it's kind of half six in the morning, but the whole village tends to be standing there if the weather's halfway decent, and they cheer people on, and there's people waving flags, and your support team is there. Do you get a buzz when you come up there, Willie, or are you just so in the zone after being in the water for an hour and twenty, an hour and twenty nine minutes that you just want to get in the bike and get going? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm focused. I know where I need to go. I'm waiting, looking for my support uh, crew members waiting for me. Mm. I could see up two of the lads on, on the crew. They were, you know, watching me come out and giving me shouting for me to come on. And everyone else was there, even lining up on the way in, mm. on the pier, on the way to the swim exit. You know, they're all screaming and cheering for you. They're not just screaming and cheering for their own um, no, exactly. uh, athletes. And that's the beauty of it. There, like everyone is. 
well in you to the finish line mm. as you go where they are. Because once you get through the swim, after that you're pretty much on your own. There's no one else there to cheer you on mm. except your support crew yeah. and yourself. You're in a monologue. Yeah, you're just you there. There, there yeah. with your thoughts on the bike for the next 180 kilometers kind of thing. Yeah. How was the cycle then? Because you mentioned there, it, like this is not something that you just go and do on a, on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, right? You have to keep an eye on your heart rate. You have to know what your body is doing, how it's reacting. Then you have the mental side of it as well. 180 kilometers on the bike there. Did you get bored? How did you entertain yourself during that? Did you talk to anybody else on the way? Um, I'm not sure I, I, I spoke mostly. When I started off, Coming out of Eidfjord, I was, you know, watching that heart rate, trying to get food on board and focusing on, you know, taking it handy. I was told, take it easy, going up this first. And the people that passed me, just let them. Mm. And people were passing me. Yeah. And there was a lot of people passing me. Like, I was like, okay, just let it go, you know? Mm. Um, just let it go. And then by the time I started to climb up past the tunnels, you know, I was settling into a pace and I was still 10, 15 beats above what I, what I needed to be. Mm. When I came out of the tunnel, I decided to kind of stop for 40 seconds to a minute mm. and let that heart rate settle. And that I did that. I didn't want to be stopping on the bike. That's the one thing I didn't want to do. Was. Mm. I knew that if I blew it on the first hill, I might not get through to the end. Yeah. So I had to just take that step and I did that. And I ended up doing just stopping for a one minute, you know, two or two times before I got to the top of uh, not. Yeah. And that made a difference for me. And once I got to the top, I found the range that I was in and with the speed that I was going up was slow. Mm. But when I got to the top, uh, it rolled, uh, you know, concerned about what way the wind is going. Mm. I just got down into the, into the drops on the bike and just started pedaling. Yeah. Um, and I remember, like, when we were getting the factory changed in Boston, he bumped into another finisher there, and he had his T-shirt on from 2014, and, you know, he's sneakily asked him, you know, what's the, any advice for the bike? Hmm. And he, all he said was, just pedal and get on with it. <laughs> Good and advice. I laughed when he said it, because, you know, that's all it is, really. And, you know, <laughs> when I got to the top of Dernoff, you know, I just flash back to him saying that, yeah. you know, you cheeky fact are you. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know what, I'm going to do that. Just pedal and get on with it. And if I came to a point where, you know, was I getting bored now, or was it a tough point, mm. I would just say, yeah, pedal and get on with it. Next one down, be safe, watch for it, watch your descent. Yeah. You know, so I was watching the road. Um, but then I started picking up speed up there. So anytime I lost climbing, I made up for it. And I... Clocked up almost eighty kilometers gone down one of the hills. Wow, that's a hell of a speed. And I'm pretty pretty decent enough on the descent. And then I started picking up picking off people on the bike, um, yeah. and it just worked out for me. And then by the time we got to Galo and started the the other half, you know, mm. that's when you know, I was starting to pray. You know, get me up this hill. Yeah, I need to get up this hill and then up the next one and keep enough energy for the last one. And then, like, the heavens opened up on us. And um, it was just, people were suffering with the cold at that stage. Yeah. Um, 
and I'd invested in a great um, rain jacket for myself. And I tried and tested it, loved it. Yeah. Just put there on and just went for it. Yeah. Because it's very exposed. And before I knew it, I was coming into to the end. Yeah. Because it's very exposed out there and that's the thing that you can get four seasons in one day and we have to remember, I think they've called this weather front that we've been experiencing for the last sort of week or so in Scandinavia, they call it Hans and there was so much rain and that kind of thing and you can be freezing cold with that wind coming across as well. Were you in a situation then once the rain started coming down, okay, you have your good jacket on and that, but are you going, I can't wait to get off this bike, I can't wait to just get running and warm the body up again kind of thing? Um, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't, when I got to the top of Inlandfell, I started to feel the cold come in on mm. me. And once I felt that, it was jacket on, layer on, and, you know, pedal to get to, to warm up. And I knew then that it starts into the descent. So you naturally, you're not going to be working as hard. And mm. that's, that's a point in time where you could get really cold if you weren't smart about what you were wearing. Yeah. So I had to switch on there. All right. And But it, I was, by the time I was coming down there, I was thinking about, yeah, I want to get off the bike now and I want to get running. Because yeah. I do want to get uh, that temperature up. Um, and then, you know, my crew met me for the last time at the top of it and I said, this is what I want to want to put on when I get down there and they'll have it ready for me. Mm. Uh, and, you know, taking all of that off when I got down there, you know, it was well worth it. You know, you need to wrap up warm because it did, it, it was so bad coming down some of the hills. A lot of the, there was like two inches of water flowing down the road <laughs> in front of me. So I really had to be careful, you know, not to kind of gun it mm. where you could possibly because you could just come off the bike and yeah. that's it. It's, it's very dangerous. Um, and there's that balance to be struck between winning time downhill that you've put so much effort into getting uphill and maybe lost a bit. And then that thing of just staying alive as you get down there, because there's, and there's a few really scary hairpins as you come down there as well, if, if I remember rightly, you know. Um, when you get off the bike then, d- did you have any sort of idea in terms of position, in terms of time, where you, where you wanted to be, where you ahead of that, where you behind it? And did that have any sort of mental effect on you, really? Um, well, I knew, I kind of looked at finishing times for the last previous years and knowing where I was at in my fitness level at the time of starting the race, mm. that a black t-shirt was probably 10, 15 minutes away. Okay, the margin let, for let, it was let, so me pa- let me pause you so, there, right? So the black t-shirt is given to the people who finish up on the top of Gausta Toppen. Is it the first 140 that get that? So first 160. For first 160, right? And the remaining sort of 80 people or whatever, they usually finish the race a little bit later and that means that they have to finish it down in the car park sort of right beside where the mountain is that they finish. And the black t-shirt, for those of you who are not into the Norseman, that's the thing. That's the holy grail. Nobody even cares about winning. You just have to get the black t-shirt, right? Yeah, but for me, um, my mindset was like, yeah, I admired the people that go, that, go to that place and mm. get there, but... Uh, I knew that my body would struggle to get that, and but my mind wanted it. Mm. Um, so I needed to be very conservative about how I was going to get to the finish line because for me, I'd already suffered a DNF in Kerplan. Yeah. And I didn't want another one. Mm. And when I won the ballot, you know, I knew I had a lot of work to do. It wasn't yeah. as if I was starting from a really good, strong place. Mm. So for me, Norseman was about finishing. Yeah. And that, if that was a black or white, 
it was irrelevant for me. Didn't matter. I didn't care. Hmm. Now I wanted to finish. I didn't want to be, you know, finishing mega, um, mega late. I ended up, you know, the 15 hours I was out there and I finished. Hmm. Um, but finishing the Norseman meant so much more to me than a black or a white. And that's not to take away from what everyone else views of the black and the white are. Oh. Um, but it was never that, this race was never about hmm. the, the, the colour of the heat shot for me hmm. because it's a, it symbolises a kind of a, a breakthrough for me in the place where you know I've gotten to yeah. achieve a, a life goal well, that's it. People's judgment gets yeah. clouded about that with the black T-shirt. I know people who've been lucky enough to compete two or three times in the Norseman and maybe the first time they get the white T-shirt and they kind of don't feel, you know, it's kind of like getting a silver medal at the Olympics. They kind of feel, well, I really want the gold kind of thing. But then again, as you say, you just have to do your own race. You have to take into account where you are physically and mentally and what you can do on the day. And finishing it at all is a staggering achievement when you think that it's 3.8 kilometres in, in cold water, 180 kilometres on the bike and a marathon at the end of it. Now, we mentioned the weather a little bit earlier on there. Um, Gausta Toppen was ruled out basically because they couldn't finish the race in the top of the mountain this year because we couldn't safely get everybody up and down. So the whole thing sort of finished a little bit of a level below. Um, was it very tough? Uh, Zombie Hill, as it's called. Was it very tough on the run or did you find it sort of you know relatively easy after the cycling? Um, I should have been better on the run. And I worked very hard on, in my training on the run. And when I got the bike, I found that I was running at a reasonable pace for the first 10K. Mm. Um, and then I kind of struggled with, you know, maintaining um, forward progress and kind of uh, walk jogging. Mm. You know, so my pace had slowed down, slowed down a bit. But when I came to Zombie Hill, um, that's when it kind of kicked in for me. So I was able to find a newer pace I wanted to be at. Yeah. So I started marching at that pace. Yeah. Uh, the crew with me. And we just kept that pace the whole way up. And it's just one twist back after another, after another. And it is just relentless. <laughs> it is relentless. And if you just say, oh, I wish this would end, I knew I was going to be screwed. So like that on the bike, I love hills. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just going to keep going mm. until this ends. Um, just keep going. And it never stopped. But halfway <laughs> up is, the heavens, got this flash light, massive thunder, and then it just opened up like biblical. And it water was flowing down the road. It was like, oh my God. And, the, and there were cars going up and down. All we could smell was clutch burning, brake dust. You know, drivers were struggling on that day, getting up and down this hill. Um, but near, as we were nearing the top, I'll never forget it, there was a flash of lightning that blinded us wow. for at least 30 seconds. Jeez. It was so close to, on top of us. Yeah. You know, and the thunder after it was just, wow. Yeah. And then it rained even harder and the hailstones came down. Oh, God. So, there was a genuine fear that, you know, if we're going to get struck here, like, and, yeah. you know, with the amount of water on the road, you know, we could all be goosed, you know? Yeah. So, I I respect our decision to kind of close it because safety at that that height, like where where it cut off for us, we were just coming up to the you know the cut off for where you go to the house top, and it was almost like thirty two, thirty three k into it. So we were just finished with Zombie Hill, 
uh, and it was announced that they, were, they needed to kind of call it a day here. Yeah. And they were 100% right. Yeah. Um, I was prepared to go all the way. Um, it would be nice to get there. Um, in the end, I was only kind of 15 minutes away from the cutoff of the black. Mm. So, like, for me, it was like, am I disappointed with that? No, I was like, wow, mm. I got that close from what I did. Yeah. Um, and when I when we did cross that, that line, um, the minute I crossed the line, that's it. My body just kind of shut down and I got really emotional and just overwhelmed by the whole lot. And it was just a blubber mess. Mm. The teammates were there just kind of holding me together and keeping it together. And mm. it took me a good 30 minutes afterwards to kind of just, you know, get a normal breathing right. It's like, you know, I'd lost somebody I loved that had a feeling and you just, you're inconsolable, but it's, extreme joy at, as well at the same time it's very hard to describe yeah. um, it's just signified everything that I've done to kind of get here and I know I put in a lot of work but I didn't do it on my own yeah. I had the best people around me I had you know the best people working with me giving me advice um, my wife and family really just you know made this happen and it's very hard for them mm. Um, we've missed out on missed out on all the family holidays. Mm. They go on holiday. I stay behind the train. Um, I would get up early in the mornings just to make sure that I had something, some energy left to kind of be there with the family. But inevitably, towards the end, it just meant I was just kind of singled out of the family. While you know, my wife had to take the brunt of any of the family work that needed to be done there, and mm. you can see that was taking a toll on towards the end. Mm. Um, so. It's more than that, you know, when you finish, you kind of think about how grateful you are and how, you know, glad I am to be around such great people. Mm. And you can see what it means to other people crossing the line as well. And the next day, how proud people are. So, mm. you know, I've done other events before and they say, yeah, you've done a marathon. Oh, yeah. And the first thing I ask you is what time did you do it in? Yeah. And, and I've never been in that mindset. For me, it's just for that particular race, was finishing. Yeah, it's just making and it to the finish I believe that, Yeah, we finished well, finished strong, and, you know, it's still sinking in what we've done out there. Yeah. And now my, you know, my, my mate Jay is adamant that he's going to get in next year, and he's really pushing to build up enough points, the X points, to kind of be within the first top 100. So yeah. the balance isn't an issue, and he's close to us. So it's a funny feeling... I'll be back next year as a support crew member. And, as, you know, uh, if that's the case, I'd love it. You know? uh, as I a support it. crew member is one thing. Would you ever be tempted to take what you learned on that course out there and, and say, I want to do this again because now I think I've done it once, I could do it better. Or are you content now? That dream that started 10 or 11 years ago uh, after reading that magazine, you know, is the itch scratched now for you, Willie, is it? Um, well... It's a tough one to answer because, you know, as I said at the beginning, I was just about to say, look, this is enough. Yeah. You know, the politics in the family is, is what it is. Yeah. And it's a lot, you know. So having done it and seen what I could do in such a short space of time, I would consider eight months short. Yeah. I know that I could do it. So if I had an opportunity to go back, I would be... <laughs> I would be going back with a with a mindset of it's now for the black. 
you know. <laughs> right, here we go. <laughs> um, yeah, here we go. This is it, you know. Um, but if it doesn't happen, I'm happy. Yeah. That, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, 20 years from now, if I'm lucky to, lucky to be alive, I can sit at the bar and just reminisce. Yeah. You know. It's, it's a uh, hell of an achievement. Before I let you go, right, I have one question for you. I don't know if how many people know this about the Norseman, right? But at the end of it, you get across the line, you somehow take yourself into the shower, you change your clothes and that kind of thing, and there's probably the greatest buffet in the world uh, at the hotel there, right? Um, did you go in there? Did you eat there? Were you able to eat? And did you throw all of the sacrifices that you made in terms of nutrition out the window and just sort of pig out completely? Or did you just go straight to bed? Um. No, I got I got into the shower. I was feeling cold at that point in time, so I got myself warmed up and rounded up the lads. I said, "I we need food." So I knew I knew I needed to get um, recovery. I needed protein, so I prioritised that. So we just got ourselves over there to that buffet, and it was amazing. It really is brilliant. Um, and, <laughs> now walking up the stairs was a bit of a challenge, but you know what? When there's something at the end of that, you know. Uh, we were going back for a second. The ribs there was just out of this world. So we're loaded up our plates a few times, you know. Uh, it was fantastic. And then after that, then we went back to the bar and we had two celebratory drinks. And by midnight, then we were all kind of tucked up. Yeah. And the next day, the next day, we did a t shirt ceremony. It was fantastic. Saying goodbye to everyone, say hello to everyone. Um, and when all that was done, the two sport crew they went off back to the bar. I said, I'm not I'm not ready to start drinking that early in the day. Um so myself and John, you know, we drove to um Ryukin because I really wanted to see um Vermark and the Telemark place. Yeah. Um so we ended up walking up the hills there and I was thinking to myself, Jesus, this is not easy <laughs> <laughs> What you know, walking is gonna help with the recovery as well. So we got a tour of the tour of the power plant. Uh, it was fantastic to see because the film I grew up with, you know, and as a young lad, I remember watching that with Kirk Douglas, and um, I always wanted to see it. Yeah. Um. So seeing that and driving around the hills there was just fantastic. Then we came back, and then we had we knew we were going to our flight. Flights had changed, so it meant we had to leave at two a.m. from the hotel. So, yeah. so we had a couple of. Um, you know, so uh, respectful drinks, and then we got some sleep, and then we got up early and drove to Oslo. Yeah. And that was the end of that. Then, and then the final kick in the kick in the hole was <laughs> when we landed. Our bags never arrived. The bike <laughs> didn't arrive. <laughs> oh, and at this point in time, as we're talking, um, my two teammates and the bike arrived. Their bags arrived. My bag still hasn't arrived, but my coveted white t-shirt <laughs> so, so the t-shirt is in so, the bag I'll tell you they better get that sorted out <laughs> yeah absolutely when you look back on the whole experience Willie despite the bags going missing despite the rental car and the battery and the light and the cold of the water and the rain and the lightning and everything else like that is it what you expected it to be has it given you what you hoped that it would do over the last decade that you were sort of looking forward to this yes and more Hundred percent, yeah. Because I, all I've been doing is living and sleeping in Norseman, watching videos. Mm. Like when I landed in Nyford, I knew where every shop was. I knew where I needed to go. It was just I had it all visualised. Yeah. 
and to see it for real, it was like, wow, yeah, it's not a dream. I'm still here. He turned around to me nicely. I'm still dreaming here. And he said, yeah, you still have to race tomorrow. Wake up. You know? <laughs> Wake up, but not just um, yet. What's yeah, what, what's the plan now? Is is triathlon still in your future, or is your your impending retirement that was put off for Norseman is is that sort of kicking in again now, or what do you want to do with it? Yeah, well, that's even funnier because before I applied for Norseman um, at the ballot, was my face chase and look, do you want to get back into this? Because uh, a race at the end of August called the Hardman is in Killarney, it's <laughs> cheap enough. So you convinced me, and I signed up for that. And then two weeks later, I got the ballot notification. So I have an entry to a full distance triathlon in on the 26th of this month. And I'm making decisions now whether I'm just going to go and do that for the fun and not kill it or just you know leave it. <laughs> what, what, what are you so leaning I'm towards at, at this stage, right? <laughs> um, well, by a feeling now, I'm feeling like I'm actually going to go and do it. Um, <laughs> That could be the worst thing I've ever tried to do. But um, what's even crazier is that the following weekend after that, I've already I have um, an entry into Dingle Marathon. Oh God! And then in October I have the Dublin Marathon, and the, the Dublin Marathon and Dingle Marathon are my two favourite um, runs to do. Yeah. But they have been postponed during COVID, and my entries have been rolled over. Yeah. So it all kind of came out this this year, you know. So mm. yes. It's going to be a decision. Am I going to do, do that race? I might just, you know, do the swim, do the bike and see how I feel. And if it's not working out, you know, just pull out of it. Yeah. I think once you've been doing it when you're, when you're no pressure, you know. That's but it. When like, you're under pressure, it's completely different. Yeah, when you've invested so much of yourself in the finish line at Norseman and just getting over that, everything else sort of, you know, falls away then. And of course, it would be brilliant crack to be with Shay and to be with Keith and anybody else who's taken part in those races. But you've kind of achieved, you've climbed a mountain now, so to speak, literally and figuratively, you know. Um, just one final question. When the start of the conversation, you talked about uh, being depressed previously. Is, is this something now that you find has helped you? Has it given you confidence? Has it given you a different way of looking at things now? Do you feel better in yourself having done this? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Because you know, when I had the bad experience in Keltman, that was probably because I was in denial about where I was at the time, mm. and I hadn't got the resilience. I couldn't answer those questions that you know you were asking me when you're on the bike mm. and it gets tough. I hadn't got a response for that for myself, and it's just too easy to give up. Mm. Whereas right now. You know, the way things have turned around for me now is that I have answers for that and they're very quick. Hmm. So I can measure my resilience mentally by, you know, how I spoke with myself hmm. during that race and what Norseman is all about. You know, and, you know, it is, it is about resilience. It is about doing what you can do to get to the finish line. Hmm. And yes, you do you need your crew. It's all about you. It's, all, it's a teamwork event. Um, it really is, but you're the one that's on the bike, you're the one that's running, you're the one that's in the water. Mm-hmm. And you have to deal with your own demons to get there. And I know that's the place where I crawled out of, I won't be coming back to it. Mm-hmm. But I'm much stronger for it. And um, much more no-nonsense now. Everything is more clearer for me and what I need to do. And um, I really truly believe that I will never be back there. And I think, you know, when you have those bad days, like, People stop you, trying to stop you from getting to where you need to be, or batteries going. 
you know, you just take them in your stride now. And, hmm. you know, I don't outsource my happiness to anyone else now. Much like the fella says at the transition, just keep pedalling and one of these days you'll get there. Willie, it's a tremendous achievement and has a tremendous story and thanks so much for telling it to me here on the Global Gale podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. There you go. That was indeed the amazing story of Willie Murphy and getting himself off his couch there. And it's brilliant to hear uh, how much that, that has given him and how much more um, happy he is in himself and how much more secure and that kind of thing uh, after doing this. And to hear this at the level of self-discipline and that that's involved as well. And then we think to ourselves, oh, you know, uh, oh, you know, I really should do something or uh, I really should go train again or maybe I should take up playing a bit of football or Gaelic football or a bit of hurling and that kind of thing. Lads, do it. Okay. Yeah, we may not be going to win the World Cup or the All Ireland or anything else like this at this stage, but get off the couch and see if you can find something that w- that you can enjoy, right? And as he says, pick your level, okay? Make this a competition with yourself and don't be too hard on yourself and get out there and get involved and do things. I shall leave you with that for this week. As I say, I just I really enjoyed that story and that chat with Willie because I just think it's such an amazing thing that he's done there. You don't have to do things like that. You could be just going out and going to the gym or going for a run or going for a good brisk walk or that kind of thing. Uh, so each to his own, as the saying goes. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you have any stories that you think I should tell, right, and don't be shy, lads, because as you heard there with Willie, right, in the beginning you hear, yeah, oh, you know, this is sort of an ordinary fellow who does a bit of triathlon, that kind of thing, but there's always a much deeper and bigger story behind it. So if you have a story yourself or if you know of anybody that has a story, please do get in touch and I'd be more than happy to talk to them and see if it's something that we would like to bring people on the Global Gale. Again, it is a podcast for the 70 million odd Irish people around the world and we're bound to be able to find a few decent yarns amongst them, right? I'll leave it at that for this week. In the meantime, look after yourselves, look after one another and I will be back to you again next week with another great story of an Irish person or person of Irish descent right here on the Global Gale. Good luck. (laughs) 